Back in February, just a week before Putin started his war against Ukraine, the president of Brazil, the very Trumpy president of Brazil, flew to Russia, spent three days in Moscow, and obviously met with Putin. After his Putin meetings on that trip, um, the president of Brazil made some headlines uh, for, for saying that his country, Brazil, was, quote, in solidarity with Russia. This week, we'll be looking more at the war's impact on the global south, this time focusing on Brazil and Africa. The war has almost acted like a centrifuge of global foreign policy, where we can see much more clearly different countries' fears, aims, and where they see their place in the world. With elections in Brazil coming up in October, how have the parties reacted to the war? How is Africa, a continent suffering pervasive food insecurity, dealing with its latest hit? And how does essentially a neo-imperialist war play with the general public of these post-colonial states? This is Undercurrents, War in Ukraine. I'm Ned Sedgwick. First up, we're looking at Brazil. Brazil's foreign policy has been defined by their populist right-wing leader, Jair Bolsonaro, for the last four years. But its place in the South Atlantic and within the part of the world covered by America's protectionist Monroe Doctrine means it has a very different relationship with the West than I'd assumed. I'm interested to see how this ideological element of a war has played out across Brazil. So I spoke to Oliver Stunkel. My name is Oliver Stunkel. I'm an associate professor at the Getúlio Vargas Foundation in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I just want to ask what Bolsonaro's relationship with Russia was like before the war. So I think Bolsonaro personally admires Putin. Putin is seen as anti-woke. He's seen as a person who concentrates all decision-making power. Uh, so that makes him uh, somebody to look up to uh, for Bolsonaro, particularly since Trump is gone. Now, it's important to point out that the attraction uh, of Putin, it goes beyond the far right or beyond the Bolsonaro fans, actually. He's quite popular uh, among the far left or even the moderate left in Latin America and Brazil specifically because he stands up to uh, the United States. And uh, I think even for moderates, um, you know, having a, a cordial ties uh, to Russia is always seen as something important uh, to better manage the highly asymmetric relationship to Washington. Where does this come from? Does that come from uh, the history of American involvement in South America, or is it more recent impetuses? I think there are several issues. The first is, of course, that traditionally U.S. influence is the major source of concern for Brazilian strategists. And this is not only paranoia. I mean, this is, you know, there is the Monroe Doctrine, a, a, a precedent, historic precedent, uh, a long history of uh, U.S. interference in the region. So the prime uh, concern for Latin American foreign policy and Brazilian foreign policy is always how do we manage the United States? So having Russia as an ally, having China as an ally uh, is something useful, irrespective of what I think about the a domestic political situation or the foreign policy behavior of Moscow and Beijing. However, there's something else. Russia is seen as, or, or Putin and Lavrov are seen as great foreign policy strategists in Latin America. If you look at the actual track record, I'm not so sure uh, why that is, 
But I think it is basically saying the end of the Cold War was, was terrible for Russia, Russia's in economic decline, and still it somehow manages to scare the West. You know, it somehow manages to retain somewhat of its sphere of influence, uh, stands up to unipolarity, makes life for Washington more difficult. So I think there's somewhat of that that, that, that explains the admiration that is really quite common among uh, Latin American uh, commentators and diplomats uh, when uh, we talk about Russia. So would it be fair to say that the kind of modern right, the, the neo-nationalist element, um, there is a kind of ideological symmetry with Putin, whereas with the left, it's for more kind of pragmatic geopolitical reasons? Yeah, I would say so. I, I think that uh, the pro-Putin sentiment among Brazil's nationalist right is very much the same that explains why, for example, the, the, the nationalist right in the United States also has sympathies. It's really quite interesting that when you look at the language used by Bolsonaro supporters, you sometimes uh, realize that this is basically stuff that comes down from sort of Fox News is being brought to Brazil. And, you know, hear comments like, you know, in, in Russia, at least, there's only two genders and, you know, they, they don't have the, the, the pride flag on, on top of each building. So these kinds of things that clearly also exist in the public debate in, in the United States among the, 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 the nationalist right. And on the left, yeah, I think it's more motivated by sort of a, a, a profound, deeply rooted uh, anti-Americanism. And if you look even further to the left, there are, of course, also uh, people who are just nostalgic about the Soviet Union there's still sort of an unreformed left in Brazil and across Latin America that basically thinks that uh, the Soviet Union should be uh, revived and somehow think of Putin as the heir of the Soviet Union. It's extraordinary because, of course, Putin is not a communist and I don't think has claimed to be a communist since uh, the early 90s. Also, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, as something which I always find baffling about the, that excuse um, that it was, what, a fifth of the Soviet Union, population-wise. And speaking of, uh, kind of Ukrainian populations, there is a large Ukrainian diaspora within Brazil. Have they had a voice during this war? Not really, actually. So the uh, it's been quite interesting. Uh, Ukraine's ambassador to Brazil has been quite active and has always sought to address the sort of pro-Russia sentiment on the far right and on the far left, and has also criticized the realpolitik, which has basically guided Brazil's foreign policy uh, since the beginning of the war. And it's quite amazing, not only Bolsonaro uh, saying he's uh, in solidarity with Russia during a visit to Moscow three days before the beginning of the invasion, but also uh, the leading candidate uh, in, the, uh, in the polls, Lula da Silva, lashing out against Zelensky in an interview with Time magazine and basically saying Zelensky should get off television and start negotiating because that's clearly he's clearly one of the uh, main culprits for the continuation of the war. But I, I, I think the, the Ukrainian... Uh, diaspora didn't doesn't really have much of an influence. Are Brazilians beginning to feel it in their pocket? Is is this uh, is the cost of living crisis, which is seemingly impacting the whole world? Is it hitting Brazil particularly hard? Yes, across Latin America, uh, people are feeling uh, inflation, particularly uh, food, energy, 
which really in Brazil has devastating consequences because the entire economy, all the products that are being transported are basically transported by trucks. Uh, so you have immediate impact on uh, on everything, and that has uh, it has a clear impact on on people's lives, uh, particularly the poor. Uh, now most people don't follow events uh, in Ukraine, so uh, it, most people blame the president and his chances of of getting reelected uh, uh, in October are certainly smaller as a consequence of the war in Ukraine. Another issue that's really important is that uh, Brazil imports uh, a bit less than a third of its fertilizers from Russia and Belarus. And uh, there's been quite some concern among Brazilian agrobusiness vis-a-vis the continued capacity to import fertilizers because some of the Russian banks are, you know, excluded from the SWIFT uh, banking system. There's some concern about potential secondary sanctions from the United States, not only against Russian companies, but against uh, com- companies that continue doing business with Russia. Uh, so that uh, clearly has a, a massive impact. And let's remember, uh, Latin America, and Brazil in particular, is uh, one of the countries most affected has been <clears throat> uh, from the pandemic. It's been a region that hasn't grown for years. And in this new uh, geopoliticized context, which is certainly negative for the global economy, the economic recovery is now much slower because of the war than it would have been without it. Do you think this is part of a wider realignment of of global politics away from kind of unipolar um, U.S. as it was in the in the noughties, and previously bipolar U.S. Um, Russia? Do you think this is part of a wider moving away of taking sides uh, in simple terms? Yes, I think that even uh, during unipolarity, of course, uh, the mass, vast majority of Latin American countries sought to somehow make the United States life difficult sometimes, uh, you know, implementing uh, certain proposals slower than usual. Also, for example, kicking proposals like the uh, free trade agreement of the Americas into the long grass. Uh, so that has always been sort of uh, part of the game, in a way, is to to try to, in a subtle manner, in an elegant manner, uh, make life for the Unipole more difficult. Now, however, it's different because uh, now there is really another player in town. It's not only, I mean, the European Union is also quite influential economically in Latin America, but it's still not seen as a unitary actor. But now China, for example, is the most important trading partner of, you know, uh, Argentina, Brazil, Peru, Chile, Uruguay. I mean, these countries are beginning to adjust their overall role in international affairs. And the way that they relate to the United States is very different now because it's no longer only the United States. It's several uh, players they relate to. And the U.S. is no longer, I would say, the most the dominant actor in Latin America today. And you kind of see that on a daily basis, for example, President Bolsonaro is uh, continuously questioning the legitimacy of the Biden administration because he says that, you know, the elections in, uh, in, in, in the United States in 2020 were stolen. And he, he says that not because he's any particular interest in the United States, but he uses that as part of his rhetoric about potential and supposed voter fraud in Brazil. He 
a lot of people expect him to not accept uh, the result of the upcoming election. That was Oliver Stunkel, Associate Professor at Fundeschau Hetulio Vargas School of International Relations. It's fascinating to see that Brazil and wider Latin America are so concerned with counterbalancing the power of the US and how this chimes with last week's episode where we looked at Southeast Asia's relationship with China. It makes sense when I think about it, especially given the history of America's sometimes aggressive involvement in Latin America. Perhaps years of pro-Western bias makes it seem jarring to think that China and the US may be viewed in the same way. Africa has a very different place in the world, and their recovery from COVID and food supply means that the war has the capacity to disrupt it more than any other region, continent. There are no concrete efforts being made to try and end Russia's disruption of the global economy and this neo-imperialist invasion. My name is Samuel Ramini. I'm an associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, and I'm a specialist in Russian foreign policy and a tutor of politics and international relations at the University of Oxford. So Samuel, uh, I just want to get to grips with Russia's relationship with Africa, particularly in the post-Cold War era. What are the main themes? I mean, Africa is a massive continent with lots of different histories and politics and cultures and everything. So I don't want to generalize too much, but are there any themes which you can define Russia's relationship with Africa? So Russia's relationship with Africa has actually been uh, developing over the course of a 25-year period. That's just one point I would like to make over the course of the Cold War. We tend to think about Russia's resurgence in Africa to be a product of Russia's uh, transition away from over-reliance on the West and the aftermath of the events in Crimea in 2014 and the sanctions. But actually, Russia's playbook on the continent has been fairly consistent since Yevgeny Primakov became uh, the, the foreign minister and then prime minister in 1996-1999. And it's consisted of a variety of uh, major tenets and pillars. What we're really seeing is Russia getting involved in, uh, in mining and energy contracts on a large scale, using debt forgiveness as a way to expand economic engagement and diplomatic relations, tighter uh, Russian uh, relations with uh, regional institutions from the African Union downward, as they try to embrace Africa's role as a pole within the multipolar order, and uh, a, a, resist, a kind of a legal uh, revisionism, or at least challenging Western international legal principles inside Africa through an aversion to unilateral sanctions and Western military interventions, and defending isolated regimes from Eritrea to Sudan under Bashir to Zimbabwe. And now we're starting to witness Russia's role as increasingly that of a virtual great power. Like a, a country that can project uh, the appearance of influence across the continent by inviting 43 heads of state to Sochi, for example, engaging in deals all across with private military contractors and uh, informal tactics as well as uh, more formal tactics, but limited depth in terms of uh, commercial engagement, and uh, in particular, as well as uh, a tendency to focus on uh, building a broad array of partnerships instead of the deep partnerships that we saw during the Soviet era. And can you explain where the Wagner Group fit into this? The Wagner Group is probably an arm of Russian foreign policy that, that people are, have an ambient awareness of um, without any depth. What, what is the Wagner Group and what do they do in Africa? So the Wagner Group's role in Africa really began uh, to develop over the course of the past six years or so. So after the Wagner Group was involved in the interventions in eastern Ukraine and then in Syria, it started to establish something of a global presence and its uh, personnel numbers swell, swelled from 1,000 to 6,000. So they started entering uh, the continent via Libya, where they supported um, Khalifa Haftar, 
uh, and they worked alongside uh, Egypt in the United uh, Arab Emirates. And then now we're seeing them uh, in a variety of capacities in other countries, it's like uh, the Central African Republic, uh, furtively in Mozambique, and uh, most recently in Mali. And the Wander Group's roles are several fold. Number one, they act as a counterinsurgency uh, partner for uh, either authoritarian regimes like uh, the Malian Junta or would be autocrats like uh, Khalifa Haftar in Libya. So they, uh, and they try to transfer and advertise the success, supposed success of their counterterrorism campaign in Syria to African countries with the mixed results, especially in an offensive capacity. The second thing that the Wagner Group does is uh, combines its efforts with the uh, troll farms and political interference campaigns to influence the domestic situations on the ground in ways that suit Russia's interests. So they act as um, effectively a tool of political leverage and political influence for Russia that is uh, deniable and uh, can take risks that the Kremlin would not want to impose upon itself. And the third thing that it does is guard uh, mining uh, and extractive assets, which enhance uh, Russia's access to these uh, mineral reserves, like diamonds in Central African Republic and Sudan. And even more importantly, in the case of Sudan, enable smuggling of gold to the Russian Central Bank and uh, sanctions-busting tactics. So that's what the Wagner Group appears to be doing in Africa. North Africa, obviously, we've spoken about in the podcast before, the the food crisis is going to hit them particularly hard. But sub-Saharan Africa, are we seeing the same... um, are we seeing the same price rises, the same shock to the food systems and and pr- cost of living? So North Africa just seems to manifest itself into large-scale mass protests in a much readily available way. And we start seeing the uh, tangible impacts of these food and security problems, probably because of a hangover of the Arab Spring and also uh, protests in the decades that preceded that. But I think it is a problem inside sub-Saharan Africa as well. And we're definitely seeing uh, issues in particular in Sudan, for example. There could be an initial 9 million people suffering from malnutrition, of which that would be directly related to Russia's uh, uh, blockade of the uh, Odessa port and refusal to sell fertilizer. And that's why Hemeti's visit to uh, to Russia in the 24 hours before the invasion and uh, was not just unpopular because of the dislocations that could be caused by the Port Sudan base and the belief that Hemeti was using this to advance his own agenda and destabilize the country. It was also because Hemeti was engaging with Russia at the precise moment when Russia is doing actions that are directly undermining the quality of life and standard of living of the Sudanese people. So Sudan is one great example of where this food insecurity problem is really growing. The African Union, at least from their official statements, are calling this a broader continental problem. They're calling it this collateral damage, I think was the phrase that was used a few days ago, to describe the, the continent. Of course, they didn't criticize Russia specifically, but they made that point. Kenya also has been expressing concerns about this, though the Russian ambassador to Kenya has been very well, among the most vocal in the African continent about warning about how swift sanctions are causing the problem. So I think that we're seeing it, first of all, develop quite significantly as a problem in, in Eastern Africa, but in, it's also a risk to the Sahel, right? We have extremism, war, desertification, so many other risk factors in Zimbabwe, which is a history of food insecurity. I'm thinking that what we're seeing in Northern and Eastern Africa is going to spread imminently across the continent, and this is going to be a significant problem. What does what do countries have to gain from backing the West in inverted commas from joining in crit- public criticism of Russia? Um, have any African countries joined in any sanctions against Russia? So, not a single African country is engaged in any kind of uh, sanctions regime against uh, Russia. What we're seeing at most that will be coming going forward is what I would call soft sanctions or informal sanctions. 
So, for example, they're worried about the, the secondary risk of losing uh, U.S. quality equipment. So they either smuggle in arms uh, or they just don't purchase necessarily upgrades in terms of Russian military technology. Or they hedge and they delay potential large-scale economic projects. All Dubai in Egypt has not necessarily been delayed, but maybe the Russian investment in the Suez Canal industrial zone, maybe some of the gas fields that Russia is pursuing in South Africa, some of the Rosatom projects, some of those things that were being in negotiation just get kicked down, can down the road indefinitely. So most of what we're going to be seeing from African countries are soft and informal sanctions and delays of expected projects and slower uh, growth of trade and investment rather than actual uh, formal uh, legal restrictions. That's just an overarching trend that I wanted to point out. And with respect to siding with the West, there are concerns about like, you know, well, what, what exactly these countries are going to get. I think that obviously they, there's a desire for European and American investment, particularly as a counterweight or a hedge against the over-reliance on Chinese debt and the Chinese belts and roads. That would be considered to be an advantage of, of quite a bit of significance. And, uh, but what we're, what we're seeing is many countries uh, straddling the, uh, the, uh, some kind of a gray zone, either criticizing the war, but then not wanting to punish Russia or basically abstaining and trying to balance all different sides. I think the general consensus is that African countries do not want to be appear pro-Western or pro-Russian. Instead, they want to appear like they're embracing some kind of a multipolar order and playing everyone off each other. And that seems to be the predominant narrative and predominant theme on the continent. The only countries that really seem to be very vocal in, uh, in condemning Russia maybe are, is Chad because of their problems with Central African Republic and the Russian support for the fact rebels, which seem to pose a threat to their security, the Mali issue, and smaller countries like Liberia, which I think was one of the few that actually was an original signatory to the resolution to kick Russia off the Human Rights Council. Is this something new? Is this something new in, in modern politics or post, post-independence politics, this, this ability and desire to just go their own way? For African countries to go their own way, not to take sides, um, to kind of yeah, to 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 live in this grey area. Well, I think it's a, a fairly consistent feature of some of the responses to past international crises, and uh, Russia is capitalizing on that. For example, look at the Kosovo War in 1999, one of the earliest examples of normative and ideational bonding between Russia and African country, where the discussions between Boris Yeltsin and Nelson Mandela about uh, opposing NATO's uh, military intervention against Yugoslavia. And uh, pursuing that, uh, Libya obviously was on their uh, seen as an African uh, attack, and it provoked mixed reactions because Gaddafi was a polarizing figure. But there was sizable discontent on the continent about NATO's uh, military intervention. Many countries in in Africa, Egypt and Algeria, from the north down to South Africa, and many did either did not say anything, or in those cases, actually tacitly or more overtly, uh, have given support to the Assad regime in Syria against attempts to overthrow it. We saw similar kinds of displays of solidarity, intermittent fashions with Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela. So there's a tendency to kind of support existing governments, support the status quo, and also uh, reject any, any, any attempt by the West to kind of uh, pressure countries. And even though it's ironic that Russia is actually doing what they often would accuse Western countries of, like invading another country, trying to overthrow its regime, trying to compromise its sovereignty, and not only doing that, annexing its uh, large-scale, large parts of its territory. The well, African countries don't necessarily see it that way, and they see what Russia is doing as kind of a fight against unipolarity and a fight against Western influence, and that's where the popularity of it rests. And the more that uh, Sergey Lavrov, Dmitry Medvedev, and uh, all the people around Putin talk about this post-Western foreign policy and this crusade against the unipolar order, the more that narrative seems to resonate. Do you see any potential winners from the war 
in Africa? So uh, that's a great question. I think that obviously the alternative suppliers of uh, energy are going to be potential winners. So Senegal is really getting a lot, not just because it's uh, the heading the African Union and all this uh, diplomatic efforts, so it's getting a bit of uh, clout. Uh, they're also having uh, offshore uh, energy energy fields that uh, Germany and uh, Olaf Scholz has just been exploring to get the Europeans involved in. I think Senegal is one that we should watch for as a potential winner. Another country that could be a potential winner in all of this is uh, Nigeria, obviously. I mean, the Russians are still courting them now. A new Maghreb, Morocco to Nigerian gas project, but obviously they have alternative oil supply. That's quite valuable. Algeria will probably end up getting the best of every world. We'll be able to, at least in the short term, maintain its uh, uh, defensive uh, dependence on Russia, though it may be continuing to be covert about arms transfers. Sometimes they announce them well after the fact, as those persistent rumors that Russia transferred S-400s to them and they never reported it. And they're also the alternative supplier to Italy and many other European countries. I think those, those alternative energy suppliers, Algeria, Nigeria, Senegal, those are, are early winners from this potential uh, conflict. I think that um, elsewhere on the continent, I mean, it's hard to really think in terms of uh, particular winners and losers. The impact of food insecurity and the fact that Russia, is, in terms of uh, supplying Wagner Group forces, in terms of getting involved in new counterinsurgency operations, trying to expand its number of theaters of influence, in spite of its manpower shortages in Ukraine, rather than decrease them, suggests that the governance problems that Russia brings are going to get worse, especially in the Sahel. Is there any sense amongst Africa that this is uh, the twilight of the Russian-Soviet era of kind of great power actions, even if not great power reality? So that's a great question. I think that a lot of Russia's uh, heft and uh, belief in its uh, potential great power status came out of what they saw to be the decisive military intervention in Syria. And their success over there, even after Western sanctions were imposed, and after Russia was seemingly isolated, uh, at, at least in part, from the Western community. And uh, the effectiveness of Russian military technology, the effectiveness of Russian uh, uh, the, the military's overall performance and coordination with local actors has uh, greatly dissipated with the failure of the war in Ukraine. So with the image of Russia as an effective military power and security guarantor fading, uh, African countries might look at it more quizzically when it comes to soliciting counterinsurgency and counterterrorism assistance. The early signs are that it hasn't impacted it that much. I mean, Russia still upgraded its military cooperation agreement with Cameroon, for example, which was signed in 2015 against Boko Haram and piracy. That's gone up. So they haven't lost any agreements and they're getting more. But in the long run, I think that the problems that they face on the ground in Ukraine will uh, potentially erode uh, Russia's image inside Africa. And it might lead to more uh, transactional, shallower forms of engagement with Russia uh, rather than uh, actually relying on Russia to kind of shore up uh, state institutions or allowing Russia to effectively capture the state. But kleptocracy is a powerful force, and that might actually uh, overwhelm any of these kind of rational considerations of a Russian power. I've already seen that happen in Guinea, Mali, and uh, Central African Republic before, so we have to see what happens. That was Samuel Romani from the University of Oxford. I'm really glad we've explored these regions. It's busted a lot of my preconceptions and cut through this simplistic, developing world susceptible to Russian misinformation narrative. What looks like moral equivocation to us looks much more like pragmatism now I've learned a bit more. But I said, I do think that these countries' pragmatic actions are, ironically given their young populations, slightly living in the past. A past in which Russia is an effective superpower, 
that can bring positive change and counterweight America and the EU, when in reality it seems that all Russia has the capacity to do is disrupt rather than truly help or create. Again, maybe my Western bias. The next logical step, though, is to look at the superpower that sets a Western agenda. Next week, we'll be looking at the United States of America. We'll be looking at their role in how the war started, whether they're to blame at all, and how the war has impacted their foreign policy and domestic agenda. Thank you for listening to this episode of Undercurrents, War in Ukraine. And thank you to Oliver Stunkel and Samuel Romani. If you want to learn more about what's going on in Ukraine, head to Chatham House's website, chathamhouse.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this issue and on what aspects you want us to cover next. You can find us on all social media at Chatham House. I've been your host, Ned Sedgwick. The producers are Anouk Mie and David Dargahi from Earshot Strategies. And thanks also to Alistair Burnett at Chatham House.